Hi, this is Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation, and welcome to another New Thinking podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Derek Miadovnik, who is the Restorative Systems Administrator for the Vermont Department of Corrections. Hi, thanks for having me. Vermont has quite a reputation for innovative thinking in the area of corrections. And so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the philosophy that guides you and about some of the interesting things that you've been working on. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think Vermont's a state that tries to play to its strength. And uh, one of our strengths is our relatively small size and that we still have a real sense of community and town and active citizen participation in uh, all sorts of civic life. But specific to uh, corrections, uh, one of the ways that that's become expressed uh, for years now has been through citizen revenue boards that have been operating since at least 95, I think, here in Vermont, where individuals who've been convicted of misdemeanors have for a long time now been required to appear before a volunteer citizen board. So, of course, we're talking about uh, a restorative justice approach and philosophy that has really taken root here in Vermont. And uh, we've, over the past several years, begun to apply that not only on the low level of uh, the offense scale, but also uh, onto the, uh, the more severe cases uh, and specifically the reentry process. So you started with the reparative boards in Vermont, which focused on misdemeanor offenses, is that correct? That, that, that's right. I'd say that's where, um, where as, as a state, we kind of cut our teeth. And, and how widespread are they now? We've got 76 individual community reparative boards. What does that consist of? These are volunteers who do what with the offender? Well, it's really predicated on the notion that the person's showing up at the very least saying, yes, I did it. So there's not, they're not fact-finding. Um, the conversation begins from the perspective of, how do you think other people were harmed? And it's done not in a didactic way, but I would say in an educational and an informative and a very personal way. And then, what do you think you have to offer in the way of repair? And if there are individual victims who chosen to participate in this process, you know, first and foremost, what do they want? What are their needs? Give me some examples of the kinds of misdemeanors and then the kinds of responses that panels come up with. So, yeah, again, we're talking primarily about low-level offenses that can include shoplifting, DUI. And what what would the sanctions perhaps be? An example might be, I know there was a guy who had shoplifted from a video store. This is a guy struggling to keep his store going. He came to the board. He really expressed just that, that this isn't just a business to him, but that it's a business that's hard for him to run that he built at a time when that medium, frankly, was a lot more popular, that he's got children. So all of a sudden, when you have somebody removing the barricades of their life and saying, hey, like, your decision, like, take six DVDs. Let me tell you about my 16-year-old daughter, and let me tell you about my 18-year-old who I just sent to college. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, in a way, a, a gift is being offered, the gift of, of connection. You know, in this case, ultimately, the guy who ran the store, he needed some help. He needed some help at home. He was working a lot. He had injured his back, which prevented him from mowing his lawn. 
And, and that the Hollywood video was the victim? That's what the, yeah. uh, the, the owner owned that's, that store? That's right. That's right. Well, that is a happy ending because I was going to say it sounds like a lot of effort on all parts to, to resolve something that sounds like a, a rather minor offense. You know, it, it, on, on one hand, there is definitely an outlay of effort. But on the other hand, the absence of that helps to contribute to some pretty larger scale patterns that we see play out time and again with folks who uh, don't respond very constructively to low-level misdemeanor sanctions and ultimately either continue at the same level of severity or sometimes ultimately escalate. So from a prevention perspective, it's effort and time well spent, and it's primarily driven by volunteers who are doing that because, again, they live in that town, and uh, it's not academic to them. We've been talking about the response to misdemeanor offenses, and the Department of Corrections in Vermont is also addressing reentry issues, offenders who've committed more serious crimes who are now returning to the community. You've developed a program there that's also rather creative and involves the community as well. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. We responded in 2002 to the what was called the Serious and Violent Offender Reentry Initiative. This was a federal initiative to provide states with money specifically to enhance or promote uh, their best thinking around offender reentry. And to us, it became a natural extension to build upon this culture of restorative justice, of relational justice, if you will, and apply that where, the, frankly, the stakes are higher. So we have, uh, over time, created an infrastructure of what we call community justice centers. And these are actually the places where many of the volunteers that I mentioned on these record boards are organized and trained. So uh, basically, we subgranted a first round of money to justice centers to do a design phase. Um, so did you end up with different programs all across the state? And is well, that... originally there was some variation, yeah, and, and, and to some degree there's still some. Um, one community uh, adopted a mentoring approach, but several other locations began to get excited about a model that was coming out of Toronto called POSAs. POSA stands for Circle of Support and Accountability. And basically, some folks up in Toronto began working with sex offenders who had maxed their sentences and were being released with no support whatsoever, or no accountability for that matter either. And so the COSA model is rooted in the notion of no more victims. And the COSA methodology is rooted in a blending of accountability and support. And again, this goes back to some pretty basic restorative principles that say if you provide a lot of support for somebody, i.e. encouragement, positivity, um, but accountability, so direct um, limit setting, having to answer for, you know, in this case, your, your whereabouts or your behaviors, then, then you're into an area that uh, has the greatest potential for effect and positive change. So how has it played out in Vermont? How many of those of these teams, these COSA teams, do you have, and, and are they, in fact, working with sex offenders? We didn't restrict them just to sex offenders, although we definitely 
Do the COSA still exist now that the grant money has long expired? It seems to me one of the big advantages of the program is that you have volunteers who are doing a lot of the work. Absolutely. So where is the cost? I mean, why can't why isn't this more easy to replicate or sustain beyond uh, a, an initial startup grant period? What we found is that you really do ideally need a singular coordinator who really could work effectively between the volunteer world and the corrections world. So the, the cost is the staff person who's there to support the, the COSA, the volunteers who are making up this team of support and accountability. Yeah, and uh, you know, for the cost of what it, would, what it takes to incarcerate one person a year, that's what we would, uh, that's what we'd get. You know, frankly, about $50,000 would get us a full-time coordinator who could really kind of tread both of these waters very effectively. Right, and hopefully prevent who knows how many countless, oh. you know, repeat crimes. Oh, yeah, the math, the math is a no-brainer when you do it. Yep. So give me a sense. I mean, we've sort of run out of time, but I would like to get a very quick sense of what it is like for a volunteer who's participating on a COSA team. I mean, here's someone who's actually volunteering to develop a relationship with someone who, for instance, might have sexually abused a child. Yeah. Um, What does that consist of? I mean, is it like, come on over to my house for dinner? 
or is it just uh, you know I'll drop by once a month and with a checklist and make sure that you're following your curfew or thus and such. I mean, how, how intimate do they get? And you know, what what is a relationship like? You know, I think like any relationship, Rob, they progress and they probably start with some more you know boundaries. One of the strengths of this model is the strong connection back to corrections and back to. Uh, the probation or parole officers. So a volunteer might say, hey, you know, I've been working with John for eight months. You know, my wife and I would like to make some, uh, have, have him over for dinner. Again, going back to this coordinator, they probably run that through the coordinator. The coordinator will call the probation officer and say, what do you think of that? And, you know, we talked about sex offenders a little bit before. Sex offenders uh, is a broad topic. And within that, there's a lot of, a lot of typologies a lot of MOs, if you will. And so depending on the specific offender, something like coming on over for dinner may be a no-go because, yeah, you know, something there's somebody who lives in that house that fits the original victim profile, or it may be not a problem at all. But basically what's happening is that a personal relationship is being developed through reciprocity. Our volunteers have had tremendous, tremendous experiences. I mean, I think it's a testament to the strength of the volunteers, that several of them are still doing this, like I said, even though we haven't had the full-time coordinator, so that the just center directors themselves have taken over that coordination responsibility in some cases. But people tend to really, people who sign up for it get a lot out of it. And just to be clear, I mean, we're talking about teams here, so people aren't being asked to have a one-on-one relationship with people. There's a, there's a team of people, of volunteers working together with that's, one that's offender. Right. So, yeah, usually a person has tended to consist of at least three, um, and sometimes about three to five individuals. Now, sometimes within that structure, maybe just one of them will get together with a core member for coffee or something like that. But the primary structure is that they all get together as a group, and they start that before the person comes out, ideally. And that's, that's no small detail, too. There's also just some public information, too, that we do, Rob, which is the fact that People have to come out and, you know, like it or not, uh, over 92% of people, I think, nationally who are in prison are coming out of those prisons, right? So uh, you can only be an ostrich for, for so long before one of these folks is going to be your neighbor. And at that point, are you better off knowing them and having them um, care about what you think? And the answer, uh, you know, ultimately for many people in Vermont is yes. And Derek, if people want to find out more about what you're doing in Vermont, where can they go? They go on to the Vermont Department of Corrections website, doc.vermont.gov. Now, that address doesn't have any www in front of it. It's just http colon double backslash. Okay, well, thanks so much, Derek. I appreciate your taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Rob. I've been speaking with Derek Miodovnik, who is the Restorative Systems Administrator for the Vermont Department of Corrections. I am Rob Wolf, Director of Communications at the Center for Court Innovation, www.courtinnovation.org.